0: We have a jam-packed show this week, so we're going to get right into it. Lauren Greenfield has made a career of doing in-depth films about superficial people. Movies like Kids and Money and The Queen of Versailles examine the relationship between wealth, excess, and humanity. Her latest, Generation Wealth, begins as a look at the lifestyles of the rich and famous in Los Angeles, but blossoms outward to become an international study of the price of greed. It's fascinating stuff. Here's my chat with Lauren Greenfield. You've said that Generation Wealth is not about the rich, but about the influence of affluence. Can you tell me what that means?
1: Yeah, I mean, it is about the cult- wealth culture that kind of influences everybody through media and through exposure, but it's really about th- this movie is not about the 1%. It's really about our aspiration for wealth across class, across um, kind of from all
0: different sectors. And and the effects of that. I mean, I was really taken with one of the themes of the film, which was that, you know, there was a time when we aspired to be like our neighbors. You wanted to have maybe a little better car than the person next door had. But now we don't know our neighbors anymore. And we aspire to be like the people that we see in media and the Kardashians or something. But we can't. Really equal that lifestyle, and it leads to a a, a life of of denial in a lot of ways. I thought those are denial
1: and dissatisfaction Mm -hmm. and aspiration. That's exactly right. I mean, the research shows that the images of luxury and affluence in the media have increased exponentially over the last 25 years. And as that happens, the effect is that people think that these. kind of the world of the wealthy is more normal than it is or more common right. than it is, and they want those things. And so, yeah, keeping up with the Joneses has literally become keeping up with the Kardashians because that's our new reference group. And it's not only um, unrealistic, it's also fictional. It's kind of, by definition, um, unattainable.
0: This film looks back at 25 years of your work, starting with uh, an early uh, book that you did, taking photographs of the children of very rich people. Uh, And I know that like Kate Hudson's in there and a number of names that you would know, and then a lot of names that you wouldn't recognize, but you revisit all those people. And I thought it was really uh, fascinating to see the end result of, of some of their upbringings. The one young woman who now seems very spiritual, who was in the 90s, you know, a bikini-wearing girl on the beach with all the other guys that she was hanging out with, the most popular girl in school, the prettiest, uh, and now has a much more philosophical view of, of that uh, it, it, as a juxtaposition to, uh, to people. Uh, next to her, the the boys that she was hanging out at the time who just seem like they haven't changed one whit in 25 years.
1: <laughs> That's right. I mean, one of the inspirations for me doing this project was the early work that I did in L.A. about kind of life in the fast lane, um, the Hollywood influence kind of youth culture in L.A., when I look back at it, I saw that so many of the things in, in our culture now had blown up since then. And so I wanted to go back to some of those kids. And Mijinu, um, who you mentioned, was voted Best Physique at Beverly Hills High School. And, and yet she found that lifestyle, and actually the other kids um, that I profile from L.A., Paris, who was the son of a rock star, and Gmo, who was a rapper himself, They also kind of um, lived a little bit the fallout of that lifestyle and made choices to have a different life and raise their kids quite differently. And in a way, that's the hope at the end of the film and kind of the antidote to Generation Wealth is being able to make these choices and also focus
0: on family. Interesting, though, that the son of the rock star, son of the singer of REO Speedwagon, said, you know... For a long time, he, he didn't try all that hard because he knew that he could never really match the achievements of his father. And I guess that's one of the the takeaways uh, from coming up in a life of affluence is you either can wallow in it and enjoy it and, uh, you know, I don't know, what take advantage of it. Uh, but there is a deep psychological underpinning that goes along with it.
1: Well, I mean, I think that is hard. One of, the, one of the things that I was struck by was when you ask kids what they want to be when they grow up nowadays, the most common response is rich and famous. Right. And not only is that not a job, but the therapist who's in the film who treats um, Wall Street bankers and their families um, as his specialty, he says that that leads to depression, the kind of affluenza where I think in Paris's case he felt like, yeah, he could never match his dad's success, so why even try? And I think one of the things we see in Generation Wealth is this kind of lack of meaning, the kind of meaning and purpose that people used to take from traditional institutions, their school, their family, their their church. Now that they're kind of just awash in the values of wanting more, of having, of having things, um, it kind of leads to Um, people not feeling like they know where the meaning comes from in their life. And Paris ends up finding meaning in his family.
0: This film really is about collective greed and and the price that comes along with that. But a lot of the images in this film are quite beautiful. And, And when we look back at the photographs from 25 years ago, the thing that kind of provides... In some cases, the spine of the film, I suppose, uh, they're very beautiful. Is, is there a, an idea that, or a, a, a worry that people might see this work as aspirational in any way, even though the theme of the film isn't?
1: Well, I think it's it is about also um, understanding and coming to terms with our own aspiration, and so. If people have those feelings at any point in the film, I think that it, the film will also give them an ability to reflect upon those. I know that's certainly the case for me as I went on the journey, that it started with high school where I wanted the fancy clothes and the cars that my friends had that I wasn't able to have. And yet because I my parents um, didn't really believe in those things, I also questioned why I wanted them, and that made me want to examine it. And I think hopefully people will have that experience in the movie that there'll be a kind of um, seductive seductive quality to some of the imagery or some of the um, kind of objects of desire in the film. But I think it also really shows um, the kind of dark side of, of... money not leading to happiness, and actually most of the subjects in the film are kind of trying to fill an emptiness that can't be filled. And it's not just money. We see in the film that, that wealth is much more than money. It's also about image. It's about fake it till you make it, about the pretense of wealth. It's also about the currency of, of beauty, of sexuality, of youth, of branding, of fame, of looking to all of these elements to give us value.
0: There is a, a quote in the film uh, near the end, and this doesn't give anything away, it's not a spoiler, but the Las Vegas host, uh, I can't remember her name, uh, but she says, I'm, I've taken private jets around the world, I've partied with rock stars, I've done this, I've done that. Then she gets sort of, sort of a wistful look on her face and she says, but you have to be careful what you wish for which would suggest that there's a price that goes along with this that is beyond financial.
1: I think that's right. In a way, it's what we hear from almost all of the subjects that they go on this journey where they are led by greed or vanity or um, wanting to have status, and everybody experiences a kind of crash from that, whether it's a financial crash or a personal crash, and in the process, learn what is perhaps the biggest cliche in the world, money doesn't buy you happiness and all you need is love, but hearing it from the experience of a hedge fund banker who was kind of the embodiment mm-hmm. of greed or a porn star or the kind of most unlikely um, truth tellers, um, it, it resonates.
0: What was the, the quote from David Siegel, who was the, the subject of your film, Queen of Versailles? was something like, money doesn't make you happy. It just makes you unhappy in a better part of town. Right. I love that. <laughs> now, you mentioned the hedge funder. That brings up Florian Hom. Uh, he is – is he the villain of the piece? I don't know. I, I, I felt as I was watching it that I took an almost immediate dislike to him. And, and I'm not exactly sure why, but there was something visceral about – him. And, and it improved slightly the more he spoke because I felt like perhaps he realized that part of the way that he lived his life in in, in a quest for cash uh, was was maybe not the way to go. But I also got the feeling from him that if he had the chance to do it again, he would.
1: And I think that's really the big question that that we're left with in the film is there is the possibility for that we're on an unsustainable path and there is the possibility for change and we see that in a lot of the characters but it's hard to know whether the change can be sustained or whether it's just in the moment of suffering i think florian was so compelling because he was the embodiment of greed. He wanted to be like Gordon Gekko mm-hmm. in Oliver Stone's Wall Street and the way he, he smokes that
0: cigar, that. man. What? The, the way he smokes that cigar was like a villain from a Hollywood movie.
1: Right, he yeah. is like almost like the devil and so when he becomes this wise truth teller, which I think he really is. I mean, he's very smart. He really does realize his mistakes, and now na- when, when we meet him, he he doesn't have anything. He's lost his money. He's lost his family, and he is makes a very convincing argument for why he was chasing the wrong God and why we should learn from his mistakes. And yet, with his son's daughter and his son, you can see that they're not quite sure if he had the chance to. You know, do it all over again, but not fall. If you might rather be up there with the with the money and the power.
0: Generation Wealth is in theaters right now. Next up, we talk censorship with Darcy Michael. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. Darcy Michael is a comedian that you know from his work on shows like Spun Out. You've seen him on Just for Laughs. Maybe you saw him perform live at Vancouver Pride or Toronto Pride. He's based in Vancouver. I had the chance to sit down and speak with him recently about censorship in comedy. It's an increasingly uh, pervasive thing. Comedians are being told what to say, what not to say on stage. And, you know, he doesn't buy into it. Here's Darcy Michael. Congratulations on the special. Thank you. What was it about comedy for you in the first place that made you say, this is where I want to be? Uh, You know what it was? I think I was
2: just annoying everyone around me. And I think it was more them. Like, I never even had seen a stand-up show before my first time on stage. My husband, after we got married, was like, I gave a funny speech at the wedding, and he was like, you got to try this. And I was like, I don't know. Like He's like, no, but you're really loud and obnoxious, and I think you should. And so I tried it, and it's so funny because it's true. Like, now outside of work stuff, I'm so chill because like, I don't have anything to prove anymore, you know. I'm like, you if you want to think I'm funny, Google me. You know, like you can find out if you like me or not. But yeah, it just I think it was just an outlet. Like it was just I was always the class clown. I was always the jerk lipping off and stuff. And it just kind of seemed like the right fit. I'd tried Second City when I was younger, like right. 18. I, and I didn't like collaborating with other people. I'm like, get off my stage. I got something to say.
0: So you didn't grow up listening to George Carlin do any of that because that's uh, what every he, comic says. Oh, it was George Carlin that made you know you who want it was for me. It
2: was John Candy. My okay. dad was the biggest fan of John Candy, so we watched all everything he did, like all his movies. He hosted a night at the Improv, so I'd seen right. that a couple times, uh, and it was just I always connected anytime I saw. Because I used to be really heavy, right? Uh, And so growing up, heavy. uh, Anytime I saw a bigger guy being funny on stage, I was, or on TV, I was like, "Oh, okay." Like there, there's room, you know. Like there's not a lot of room, but
0: there's room, you know. And when you gave the speech at the wedding, that sort of kicked all this off. What was it? I mean, was it just off the top of your head? And that was the thing.
2: Like I put zero effort into our wedding, (laughs) much like my marriage. Uh, That's the trick. Fly by the seat of my pants. Yeah, I just winged it. Like, I don't even know what our vows were because Jer wrote his and he has it written down in calligraphy. And I just kind of was like, yeah, this is cool. Let's see how this goes. And so we all, every year on, my, on our anniversary, he's like, tell me the vows again. I'm like, I oh, don't oh, 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 yeah, I got nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so the speech was just winging it. It was basically roasting everyone in my, in my wedding party. Uh, and I, it was probably my best set ever. It's been downhill since.
0: Well, then how do you figure out then what kind of comic you're going to be, what you're going to talk about. So you start off doing that. Yeah,
2: I think I always just knew that, especially because I started
0: 12, 13 years
2: ago, mm-hmm. and I just knew from seeing other comics, like growing up and seeing like Gavin Crawford talk about being queer on TV was such a, different thing for me like i had never seen that before and i was like oh, i kind of want to do that and see you know if i can be that for somebody else right. uh, and selfishly i just wanted to stand out you know like i could go up and talk about airplane food right. or i could talk about you know like when we first got married we were you know there weren't a lot of other gay married couples raising right. a kid 13 years ago or 14 years ago now uh, and so it just kind of gave me a bit of a leg up Selfishly with audiences because they were like, Oh, this guy's a bit different, especially when I was like 350 pounds and I had the big beard and stuff. Like, I'd do a bunch of stoner jokes and then come out to them and just watch the
0: faces be like, What? But he looks like us, <laughs> you know? and, and what was the reaction from audiences?
2: It's always been amazing. Yeah, yeah that God bless this country because yeah. <laughs> we are head and shoulders above some other people. Yeah,
0: well, th- there weren't a lot of gay comics, probably. I mean, you mentioned Gavin. Crawford, Scott Thompson was, yeah. was that. I'm just trying to think of, I mean, Elvira Kurt. Yeah. But there probably weren't that many. How has that changed over the last number of years that you've been doing comics? I see a lot more
2: starting, especially in the last few years, and I think it's great, because yeah. uh, my material is so locked in. They're not, they're going to be years before they catch up to how funny I am. <laughs> uh, it's a competitive little industry, right? Yeah, like yeah. especially in Canada. But I, I find that the queer comics are really kind of lifting each other up uh, and kind of going at it together. But like Scott, Elvira, and Gavin, and Trevor Boris as yeah, well, yeah. Uh, those, when I first started, they were awesome. Like, and they still are, you know, like they're, uh, they're people that I can lean on and, and talk to about things. Because there's really like when there's five of us in the country, there's not a lot of people like when, if right. someone wants to do a gay gala at a festival, we know we're going to see each other, you know, it's like, I'll see you in April. And if you don't, it's like, who did you piss off that you right. didn't get booked for that's this? Right,
0: that's right, uh, You've said that nothing angers me more than closeted actors why cuz i think you know like it, i i go, wow where did that quote come
2: from no, that's a, that's a good it's one for real nice too, research yeah. it <laughs> is i i think it's our job in the public eye to help the help us not we needed we needed tolerance and acceptance to happen and if you weren't willing to do that but you were willing to take the the level of infamy and or the level of fame from your job and stuff, and not stand up for the community, I just it annoys me because I knew if I wanted to just be funny on uh, on stage, I could have been, mm-hmm. and there's I, my career might have progressed differently. I know it's a hindrance, especially still in America, for me to go down to L. A. and try stuff. Oh my gosh, we have actually heard from one of the I won't say which late night show, but we were uh, they were talking to us about me doing a late night set, and then they're like, well, we had a gay comic last year. Last and, year. Yeah, and I was like, oh, is there a limit? You know, like, and it, it is, you know, people are very short-minded, but I would way rather look back on my career right. and think I was open and honest about everything, much to my husband's chagrin. <laughs> uh, but I'd rather have a little bit of pride in the fact that, you know, like, I, there is no shame in who I am. Mm-hmm. And if you are closeted for the shame's sake,
0: you, you know, like, that's, that's angering. I don't like it. Um, when you're writing material now, uh, how do you write? I write on stage. You write on stage. You yeah, do, and, and do. so you're not like a. I'll,
2: I'll. Something will happen, and I'll write like two or three words down, yeah. and then I kind of rely on the emergency switch, right? You know, like when it's like, oh. Sh- I better come up with something funny because yeah, this yeah. sentence is about to end, you know? And then <laughs> either it does or it doesn't. So I find like just going around the city in Vancouver a lot, there's a lot of open mics and stuff. So I'll just take a couple of ideas. And and it's always evolving. Like there's jokes that I started writing a year ago that are still, you know, I'll be telling it and something new will pop in. And so it's also just because I'm incredibly lazy, <laughs> you know? I'm like, well, I'll just do it
0: when people are paying me, you know? Why am I going to sit around? As Sean Cullen tells me that he doesn't play. Anything before he walks out on stage, he's because, insane he's that way. Oh, man. he is! And, but I, 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 but I don't know how he does it. But uh, he says he just works off that pure energy. He of, does I don't know what I'm going to do, and then yeah, away you go. it's
2: Sean's. It's Sean's next level, though. Yeah. I, I'll still write a set list and stuff and stress about it the whole day, <laughs> but I won't let myself write the ideas out yeah, until yeah. I've done it a few times, and then I'll be like, okay, this, you know, this bit's got something. But I also audio record a lot of stuff. So if I'm driving or if, uh, you know, like I'll pop into a bathroom and record something really quick. Was that right? Yeah. 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 And then just be like, okay, I'd probably never listen to it again (laughs) because I hate the sound of my own voice. But (laughs) uh, it's there if I need
0: it. That was comedian Darcy Michael. You can catch his... Comedy special, Darcy Michael Goes to Church, wherever fine comedy specials are screened. Next up, we're going to introduce you to a guy called Bo Burnham. After the break, you'll find out all about his movie, Eighth Grade. You may already know him as a comedian, maybe as the star of MTV's Zack Stone is going to be famous. But I think after you see Eighth Grade, you'll think of him, first of all, as a director. It is terrific stuff. We'll get to that after the break. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. Now, have you ever wondered what it must be like to come of age in an era of information overload, motivational YouTube videos, and school shooter drills? With 8th grade, a funny, blistering look at life in junior high, director Bo Burnham gives you a peek, morphing from the creator and star of MTV's Zack Stone is Gonna Be Famous into the modern-day John Hughes. I sat down and spoke with him recently about his film, which details the life of a young girl in her last week of grade eight. It is tremendous stuff. I think you want to really see this. Congratulations on the film. Thank you. Appreciate so, on the internet, we're all kind of eighth graders, is a quote from you. What does yeah. that mean?
3: I just think, the, yeah, I think the internet makes eighth graders of us all, it feels like, or definitely feels like when I look at my friends that are, you know, in their late 20s and 30s, I'm like, why are we acting like 13-year-olds? I mean, the internet elected a 13-year-old president in my country, you know what I mean? Like, it just feels like the cultural discourse is happening at an eighth grade level a little bit, so like, to be able to talk about it with an actual eighth grader actually becomes way more honest and and let, you know, because sometimes when we talk about the internet, in terms of adults, it just becomes so hateable so easily, yeah. and, 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 and to talk uh, about it through a kid, you can kind of forgive yourself a little bit more. You can maybe look at your own narcissism and your own need to self-express and see it in a kid and be like, oh right, I'm just kind of scared and want love and want connection.
0: Well, that's what this movie is all about. It's just her trying to connect and Mm -hmm. uh, through the videos that she makes, through the curated Instagram page where she gets up, puts makeup on and Mm -hmm. then goes back to bed, takes a picture and says, just out of bed. You know, that's stuff that we all know that happens. uh, But to see it uh, so beautifully rendered on the screen, I thought, uh, made me think about it differently. It made me think about what's really behind all that, which is just a search for connection. Yeah. Even though she's surrounded by people, they tend to communicate via screen.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I think it's often talked about in terms of like this self-obsessed generation is yeah. super narcissistic and into themselves and selfie, and it's yeah. like. I, I someone that is the sort of elder of that generation that lived a little bit of it but still had a sense of myself before the internet sort of became ubiquitous or social media became ubiquitous, yeah, I, I wanted to advocate on behalf of these kids and go, like, that's just not true. It's something sadder and stranger and, and than that. That, 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 that it isn't just kids that are narcissistic. It is kids that are self-obsessed, but they're culturally required to be self-obsessed. It's a bummer to have to think about yourself all the time. It's not a good feeling.
0: No, it's not a good feeling. And, and, and it is, I think, uh, more prevalent now than it was when I was young. Mm. Pre-internet, uh, we just simply didn't document ourselves in a way uh, that, that people do now. And it does, it forces you to think about yourself and think more damagingly about how other people are regarding you. Yeah, well, I think like it's a pretty natural thing for... And
3: universal in terms of any generation, like when you're that age, you're worried about what you're like, how people are perceiving yeah. you, what you are, how you fit into the world. Um, but now it's just so it's not like the internet's introducing new feelings or or to these kids, but it's just new degrees of that feeling, more depth of that feeling, a longer duration of that right. feeling. You used to be able to leave your social life at school, and now it follows you everywhere you go, from the moment you open your eyes to the moment you close them. Like it's so. It's just an intense sort of like, it just feels like adolescence on some kind of drug or something. You know, I mean, right. just like it's so hyper-stimulative and dense. It feels like a, yeah, some sort of like, like they boiled, they boiled adoles- the adolescence of the 80s and, you know, like, it's essence, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like,
0: a little scary. Tell me about the, the creation of Kayla, the main character. She's in her last week of uh, grade 8, mm-hmm. about to go th- that next step up, which seems like such a huge step when mm-hmm. you're in grade 8, going to grade 9. It's a new school. There'll right. be older people. It's a it's a much different thing. But uh, tell me about what inspired her. I thought it was interesting that you would make this film uh, about a young girl rather than you know a boy, which might have been more relatable for you but maybe not i don't know
3: yeah i mean i didn't want to it it would have been more relatable to my eighth grade experience not relatable to my current experience and that's what i wanted to serve i didn't really care about my eighth grade experience in terms of i didn't want to make a memory i didn't want to make something nostalgic i wanted to talk about my feelings currently which were anxious and unsure and in my own head and as i sort of tried to get to know kids of this age and research it like the girls are just feeling that much more. The girls just have a slightly richer and more complicated interior life at this age than the boys do. Yeah. Um, and I think anxiety runs more commonly in the girls of that age than the boys. One, because I think their self-awareness is just a little higher at that age. And two, I think culturally we're just kind of forcing young girls to think about themselves as ideas in the world way more than we are boys. Um, and I had to, as a comedian, think of myself as an idea in the world, you know, like as someone who was a little D-list celebrity, I think that's kind of how we treat all young girls in the, in the culture. We force them all to treat themselves like little D-list celebrities, really. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that was the sort of impulse of it, it was to, um, yeah, I did relate to her now. And that's, that's all I wanted to do. I didn't really care about my youth. I mean, I really was actually wasn't even setting out to make a story about young people. I was just trying to make a story about what it felt like to be alive right now. And and then I stumbled on this time and this kid.
0: Well, she's fantastic in the yeah, film. Sure. She's got sure. uh, a face that is empathetic. You you there, there's something about her that draws you in. Mm-hmm and uh i thought it was really interesting and i read this and, and we'll wrap it up here but uh she makes this movie she's brilliant in the film and then doesn't get cast in her high school play yeah it
3: was very incredible wow yeah so mr donia from thousand oaks high school is bad at his job i told i i, I promised her I'd, I'd talk ill about him all over the country so i'm
0: doing that well here we are Well, you fulfilled your promise Appreciate thanks it. so much man. thank, thank
3: you. you thanks for the time
0: That was Bo Burnham talking about his movie, Eighth Grade. I don't want to go on and on and on about this movie, but it is one of my favorites of the summer. I think maybe of the year, even this is tremendous stuff. You want to check out my review, go to ctvnews.ca or richardkraus.ca for all the details. When we come back, we'll introduce you to the author of Swap Club 2. Her name's Lauren Wise. Stay with us. Welcome back everybody. I'm Richard Kraus. A year or so ago, my guest in studio was here for the first time, Uh, Lauren Wise was here. She was here to talk about Swap Club. Now, Lauren Wise is a Montreal-based comedy writer, novelist, and Swap Club was the first book. And it came out, and it became a sensation. I like to think it became a sensation after you were on the the radio right, show. Right? Yes, you did it for me. So, yes, and you're welcome. Uh, but you're back now with Swap Club too. But we have to set the stage for people, so let's start kind of at the very beginning of all this. Swap Club is just what it sounds like. It's a it's the story of a, a swingers club. Uh, so tell me about where the idea came from, and and. It's sort of based on true life, a little bit for you, anyway.
4: Well, it's fiction. Mm -hmm. So it's not based on my life, but it is based on rumors that circulate around Montreal about couples that do swing. Right. Um, Montreal is notorious for that rumor. Um, My mother, who's now 68, heard that rumor when she was my age. (laughs) So it's not, it, it comes to no shock to anybody that this book you know, is the hot topic for Montrealers, for sure. Um, And, you know, I I wanted to write something fun. Mm -hmm. I wanted to write something. It was a selfish, real situation that I wanted to write something that was purely an escape for me and an outlet. Right. Um, I was going through some, you know, unhappy situations in my life. My stepfather was uh, diagnosed with cancer. I was going through a divorce and I really needed to write something that was just fun and ridiculous. And that's how Swap Club got started.
0: And why is it, do you think, that the the Swap culture seems to thrive or the rumors of the swap culture seems to thrive in Montreal because maybe it happens in other cities too, but I've not really heard the rumors. Maybe I'm just out of the loop.
4: Right. I think you're out of the loop, Richard.
0: Mm-hmm. It, well, listen, because, that's very possible. I'm an old right? married man. That's that's extraordinarily possible. <laughs> you
4: know, a lot of people have come forward to me that live here in Toronto that told me that they've heard rumors circulating their parts of town also. Yeah. So I, I think there is a, uh, you know, a a more open conversation about it now. Um, back then, it was a lot more secret. It was more like parties, key parties. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of Swap Club, everything about the club and the membership and all of that was in my imagination. Right. It was created by me. So it does not exist in Montreal to that extent.
0: And uh, the book took about five years to write, the first one. And you played with it a fair amount. I remember talking to you the last time and you said, Oh yeah, I yeah. know at one point someone said you have to change the main character from a, a, a female character yeah. to a male character and you did all that stuff. to so walk me through that and then we'll talk about swap club too.
4: First of all, I'm so impressed that you remember that. And <laughs> and it feels good to know that when you're doing these interviews people actually hold on to the information for <laughs> the next one. It's it's true. Um, so yeah, the first book took a long time because I had a lot of people telling me to change things and mm-hmm. I listened. I was, um, you know, I I just wanted the book to get published, so I did whatever it took to do that, and in the end, I, you know, I ended up with a piece of work that I was truly unhappy with, because it wasn't the real story I wanted to tell, Um, and then, so I went back into it, and I spent another, you know, year rewriting it into the story I wanted to tell, which was a woman... Who is taking charge of her sex life and not being convinced by a man to um,
0: co- join his journey? And it was uh, described by at least one reviewer as Fifty Shades of Grey meets Bridget Jones's Diary. Do you think that's fair? I,
4: I that is, um, <laughs> you know, I I feel very flattered hearing that. Um, you know, I I respect Fifty Shades of Grey and and. Uh, El James's success with it, um, and Bridget Jones is definitely a you know series that I truly enjoyed. And yes, I would say that that my series is a good marriage of those two brands.
0: And now it's a series. It is the second book is out, I know. and I know. that's crazy. Like. For the five years, imagine, put yourself back in the frame of mind where you were when you were spending five years writing the first one, Uh, could you have imagined that there would have been a second one, or did you think, okay, this is going to be a a fun little thing, we'll see what happens with it?
4: Well, when I started writing no, the answer is a definite no, it was going to be a standalone uh, book on its own. But as I came to the last chapter, I kind of wasn't ready to end it. Right. I, I... it, I kind of felt like when you send your kids off to sleepaway camp and they're on the bus and the bus pulls away, <laughs> you're fine until they get on the bus and all of a sudden the bus is all you see is yellow wa- yeah, driving right. away and you get this kind of pang of like, ugh, you know. And that's that's kind of what happened. So I left the first book, um, you know, with a cliffhanger so that I could, if I wanted to, go back and I and I did almost immediately because of the reaction to the to the book. Yeah, yeah.
0: people snapped up the first book.
4: Yes. I think people. I think people need books like Swap Club. I'm not saying I'm starting a whole movement, mm-hmm. but I do think that there's a lot of um, sad going on in the world right now. There's a lot of. Uncertain. It's a serious world. Yeah. Yeah. And and, you know, I didn't write the book to win any any prizes or Nobel Peace Prizes or any kind of you know uh, liter- literary you know. Prestigious award. I don't even know know that's good English, but we'll just the, keep the going Booker on. Award. You for the a Booker, Booker Award. Whatever the Booker Award, yeah. exactly. And uh, I just really wanted to. I feel like my job as a writer is to um, give people an out, an out of their mind, and um, let people think about other things, and just give them an escape because I think I think people need it, and I'm happy I I was able to do that, and I hope I'm doing it again with the second one. And um, yeah,
0: I'm speaking with uh, Montreal-based comedy writer and novelist uh, Lauren Wise. Uh, what reaction did you get from people? What letters, emails, in person? What did people say to you when they had read the first book?
4: I'm I'm so happy that the people who follow me on Instagram actually. Write to me on Instagram. It's a weird yeah. thing. It's it's weird because we're strangers. We don't know each other. Yep. But they feel like they really know me because I really do um, share a lot on my Instagram. Um, I'm flattered that someone is texting me asking me, Lauren, you said something in the second book, <laughs> and I won't. But I, I I don't remember it happening in the first book. Can you just clarify? And I'm laughing because you know what I would never text Stephen King and say I don't get it. Can you can you just clarify this chapter for me? But I did. I wrote back to her and I I clarified what she was confused about and she's like, "Oh, okay, great. Thanks."
0: So Swap Club yes. picks up uh, or Swap Club 2 picks up or Swap Swap Club 1, one left, left off. off. So tell me about that.
4: Um so I wanted to write it as a continual continuous mm-hmm. story and the third installment which will be the last one it will pick up from where the second one left off. And uh, you know, they're they're the last book lands with them trying to decide whether they're going to re-sign for another year. Right. And so I don't want to give away any spoiler alert, spoiler no. alert, spoiler alert. But they do decide to sign on for another year, and um, and that's what the second book's about.
0: The first book has been optioned for a film.
4: It has. That's it has. exciting. It is very exciting. It's uh, it, it's exciting, and it's the most frustrating industry. I
0: oh. Uh, Absolutely. And so yeah, this is this is my world. and right. And so what's, tell me a little bit sort of generally speaking about the frustrations. You don't have to get very specific no, no. with me. But, mm-hmm. but tell me what the frustrations are. Because I think when people hear, oh, your book's been optioned, you think, I'm going to be living in a mansion. You're going to be driving a Bentley. And it's yeah. not like that. Right?
4: It is not like that. First of all, it takes an army of people to make a movie. hmm And so having your your manuscript optioned is really the very, very, very beginnings of a very, very, very long process. Mm -hmm. And so right now, um, you know, they laugh at me because my problem is impatience. I want things (laughs) now. I want it now. And that's just not how the industry works. Um, And so I have to... uh, work on a team that I'm not used to doing because when you're a writer you're autonomous you're by yourself
0: Well, and I think if if I can just call back to what we were talking about earlier Mm -hmm. that five years that you spent writing the first one I think it might have been too collaborative for you people were giving you ideas putting things in your head that as a writer you don't want that writing is solitary and it's solitary for a reason because uh, it, it has to be in order for it to reflect you and your personality
4: right I, I'm learning I'm not a team player. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, uh, I, very few writers are.
4: I I, I just, I, I want it my way. I'm very attached to the book. I, I want the story to be told in a very specific way, yep. and that's not how it works in the movie industry, and um, I have to allow the producers and the people making the movie and the people that have invested money in screenplays and all that to do their jobs and give them the space they need to make it happen, and just sit back and do my job, which is right, yep. and let them do their job to produce and not keep on looking at the watch, you know?
0: But if you uh, had a say in casting, mm-hmm. it's just sort of a dream cast, who would you think?
4: Oh my god, it changes every day. Yeah, But I'm going to stick with this answer okay. because I, I just gave it in another interview and I was kind of happy with sticking with my gut, which mm-hmm. was a year ago I had um, interviewed with another radio station and I had said, a really dulled down Lady Gaga.
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> and
4: everyone said, you're crazy. She would never do that. She, and
0: now star is born is coming out, and apparently she's terrific in it. So. Uh,
4: yeah. And she looks in this movie exactly the way I pictured her a year ago in, in Swap Club, right. which is brown hair, not she, just relatable. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I'm sticking with that answer, which is I would love uh, Lady Gaga to play Val, and if she's listening, which I'm sure she is. <laughs> I'm
0: sure she is. She's listening. She calls in all the time. I know.
4: And she follows me on Instagram.
0: <laughs> she doesn't
4: follow me on Instagram.
0: But right. So uh, this book is out in stores now. You can get it wherever you get uh, find books and Amazon and all that stuff. Uh, there's going to be a third part. And then what happens to you?
4: Um, I'm definitely going to take uh, some time to figure out what I want to focus on. Um, before I started writing Swap Club, I was writing screenplays. I have about seven of them sitting on my my desktop. I would love to go back into them and bring them up to date Where? a little bit. Um, I have some thrillers, you know, some sexy thrillers that I would like to uh, go back into and um, maybe try, you know, doing the screenplay thing again.
0: That was Lauren Wise talking all about her book, Swap Club 2. It's available in bookstores right now. Uh, Thanks to Lauren Greenfield, Darcy Michael, Bo Burnham, and Lauren for stopping by and spending some time with us. Most of all, though, thanks to you for listening. I want to thank Nick and Andre on the board, and we'll talk to you again next week.